Friends, today's scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Listen now for a word from God. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man was risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So when you're a seminary student, people ask you almost ceaselessly about your call story. By the second or third seminary visiting weekend, you've usually got a tight paragraph that covers, more or less, how you wound up trying to get a degree in divinity. Some people are second, third, fourth generation clergy, and they're sure from a young age that they're going to follow in their parents' footsteps. Some folks talk about a big eureka moment where everything snapped into focus and they knew that God was calling them to ordained ministry. My own story was not quite so clear or concise. It involved a lifelong love of the church, a good deal of theological curiosity, and a lot of trial and error. There was, for me, not exactly an aha moment where the heavens opened and I heard God say, Hannah, get your degree from Columbia Theological Seminary, an MDiv preferably. But there was this slow realization, sort of like the moment in any good investigative thriller where the journalist connects all the dots on the corkboard and red thread, where I realized that all of my most significant relationships and all of my most formative experiences were thanks to the church. And I started to wonder if, in retrospect, this was how God had been quietly calling me all along. When we come across Peter and James and John in this passage, they're having a really hard time putting all the pieces together. When we meet them on this mountaintop, they've known that Jesus is special for a while now. They just witnessed him feeding the 4,000 and returning sight to a blind man. Peter even goes so far as to call Jesus the Messiah in the previous chapter. But Jesus is really frustrated with them because the disciples are close, but not quite there to understanding who he is. Immediately before this passage, Jesus sits them all down 
and explains very directly that pretty soon he's going to suffer greatly and be rejected and killed and then live again. Peter in particular doesn't get it and he tries to argue with Jesus about what will happen to him, which really doesn't go well. But this brings us to the mountaintop where Jesus decides that the only way to make these guys understand that yes, he is the living God, and yes, he's going to die, but he will return, is to just show them. So we get what sometimes is referred to as a preview of the resurrection. Jesus is transfigured into divine glory. He's robed in white, blinding white, and he's joined by Moses and Elijah. And God's voice cut, cuts in from the heavens and really spells it out for them. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. I find this passage so funny because it is so unbearably human. Peter has no idea what to say or what he's witnessing, much less what it all means. All he can manage to say is, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tents. Even when met with Christ in all his stunning glory, even when the voice of God thunders around them, even when the prophets show up to chat with Jesus, these poor disciples just aren't getting it. Mark says a verse later that when they return from the mountain, the disciples are still wondering what on earth Jesus could be talking about with all of this son of man risen from the dead business. Even this, Jesus' last ditch effort to try and find some way for them to understand what will happen to him, it doesn't quite seem to get through. And frankly, most of why I find this funny is because I see myself so clearly in their inability to hear what is so plainly being spelled out for them. Last spring, when coronavirus became a reality and my school canceled in-person classes indefinitely, my roommate Emily offered for me to join her at her family's farm a few hours away in rural Tennessee until life returned to normal. I thought that I'd stay for a week maybe two until things settled down and then I'd go back to Atlanta and finish my degree and get back to life as planned. I ended up staying for two months, during which time the calves on the farm grew cuter and cuter with each passing day. Now, I was born and raised in the suburbs and have basically no exposure to wild animals of any kind so every day when Emily and I would walk down the long dirt driveway, I would try to coax the calves to come close enough to the fence so that I could pet them. Every day, they bolted in the other direction as soon as they heard us coming. And no matter how many times Emily politely but firmly explained that the cows did not and would not ever want me to pet them, it just wasn't computing. It didn't seem to matter 
how Jesus tried to explain it. The disciples, at least by Mark's account, they just couldn't seem to wrap their minds around the fact that the Messiah would suffer and die and live again. It just didn't fit with their understanding of what the Messiah would do and be. And they couldn't imagine a world in which Jesus would or could be killed, much less conquer death and come back. As Emily, my roommate at Columbia, reminded me just today, it felt impossible for us just a few months ago to imagine a group of armed insurrectionists violently storming our nation's capital until it happened. In the same way, we couldn't imagine that the largest united movement for racial justice that our country has ever seen would come together in the middle of a pandemic until it happened. She said, I think we have to get creative and kind in order to start looking for where the resurrection might show up or what Elijah and Moses are doing there when they cross our paths. Friends, as we get ready this week to enter the season of penitence and preparation, of somberness and mourning, we're asked to remind ourselves of this truth that the disciples can't bring themselves to recognize yet, that suffering and death are indeed a part of this story. Many of us need no such reminder this year. Sometimes it feels as though we can scarcely think of much else. But friends, we spend Lent remembering and acknowledging Christ's suffering and death in preparation for the day that we know is coming, where we are reminded that death never ever gets the last word. And Christ gives us this glimpse into that glory and triumph here, if we can will ourselves to see and believe it. In my preaching class at Columbia, we had this weekly exercise where we were asked to observe our surroundings in a place that was unfamiliar to us. And then we were asked to write a parable seed about where we saw the kingdom of God around us. You could write your parable seed about something that you noticed in the international grocery store, in a park, in a waiting room, you name it. You just had to be still and look around you for long enough to see what was already there. It was kind of a hard assignment for me as someone who often doesn't recognize God's work until long after the fact. But after a while, I started noticing glimpses of God in real time. In the homegrown bouquet from a congregant that was left on the communion table. In the way that strangers at the store insisted that the other person take the last navel orange in the gentle and reassuring squeeze of a child's hand. Like Peter, Jesus is smacking us upside the head with grace and glory and little miracles all the time. And like Peter, 
we oftentimes still don't put the pieces together until we're staring at our cork boards full of red thread much, much later. But regardless of when we come to recognize it, God's love is already alive and already quietly and persistently at work in our lives. The resurrection arrives whether we know where to look for it or not. Amen.